0: Well, I am beginning a new series on the the church of the book of 1 Timothy. And the book of 1 Timothy is written by Paul to his younger son in the faith Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus and Paul writes to Timothy and he says Timothy, basically I I urge you to remain at Ephesus and I charge you to tell people not to teach anything that's contrary to the apostolic message. So Timothy, be there, do it strong, and do it right. And he says that everything that we are and we do flows out of the grace of the gospel. We, everything we do flows out of the wonder of the cross. And as, as you understand that, you come to the living God, and he changes you. He renovates you. He establishes his kingdom in your heart. He restores much of the joy of Eden in your experience. Not totally, but much of the joy And so, he talks about the soundness of the gospel and the goodness of the gospel. For example, in in chapter 1, he says, uh, in verse 10, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, life-giving doctrine, life-enhancing doctrine. He says in verse 18, Timothy, by following these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare, good being beneficial, strong, glorious warfare. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, bodily training is of some value, while godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So the outworking of the gospel holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. In chapter 6, verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with the godliness, he's puffed up with conceit. Sound words, life-giving words, life-enhancing words. So he says, I want the church to understand these things. Chapter 6 and verse 19 says this, That You can store up for yourselves a good foundation, a solid foundation, a beautiful foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is true to the life. So so he says, I I want want the gospel to root in your heart and to overflow so that you can have hope and joy and purpose and soundness and harmony and radiance. And so he, he comes out in chapter one. And he says, that, first of all, the gospel is foundational. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God and our Savior Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. And later he discusses this. Chapter 1, verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The same is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost or the worst. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So, so Paul says, I, I received this grace as the foremost of sinners, and it, my life serves as an example, an example of hope, an example of grace, an example of what God in his mercy can do in us. Now, now, now today, in the gym here, there, there are people... Who, who go to worship and, 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 and they think this way. They think they've been raised in a context like I was, that if you're a good guy and if you obey God, then God loves you. See? That's not the gospel. That's something called, if you study church history, called Pelagianism. It's a heresy. See, if I'm a good guy, if I'm a good girl, if I do the right thing, if I obey God, then he loves me. The gospel says, I was dead in transgressions and sins. I deserved hell. I deserved judgment. The wrath of God was upon me. But God, being rich in mercy, made me alive in Jesus Christ. When I was dead, he breathed life into my being. How, how amazing grace, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's Charles Wesley said. So, so I've been saved by grace, and out of a glad overflow of my heart, I obey. I don't obey to be loved. I obey because I'm eternally embraced. See, that's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Our hearts are spring-loaded, most of us to dwell here, which is Pelagianism, which is not the gospel, which is heresy. I want you to get the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I say this, it takes care of my guilt. It takes care of my inferiority. It takes care of me beating up on myself. It gives me joy. It gives me laughter. It gives me a skip to my step. But if you walk through life saying, because I'm a good guy and I obey God, God's in my corner or God loves me, you'll never be free. You'll never have joy. In the gospel. The gospel says you were dead in your sins. God breathed life into your being. He saved you by the work of the cross. Therefore, walk in obedience out of joy and gratitude. I had a friend that called me not long ago. He has a mother who's in her mid-80s. And my friend is a wonderful, godly guy. And he's communicated the gospel to his parents time after time. And he's pretty convinced they're believers. But their their hearts are so spring-loaded to believe the Horatio Alger stuff. He said, I was talking to my mom the other night, and we were, she said, you know, I'm burying a lot of my friends. You know, very few were left. And she said this, I hope that I've done enough good things that when I die, I'll be able to go to heaven. And he said, I stood up at the supper table and said, Mom, Mom, please, that's not the gospel. That's work salvation. That's condemned in the Bible. She said, he said, you are eternally loved of God. You walk in obedience, not because. And she kind of dismissed She said, oh yeah, I know that, I know that. But he, said, but he said, but I really wonder, has it rooted in her heart? So that's why you preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's what Paul is saying, is that, is that everything flows from the gospel. J.I. Packer in his monumental book, Knowing God, said if I were asked to define the gospel in a phrase, it would be adoption through propitiation. Let me explain that. Propitiation means a covering that that what you could not do for yourself God did for you in Jesus Christ when he was the Lamb of God and died on the cross for your sins. You deserve judgment. You deserve wrath, but now you've been covered from the judgment to come. And Packer says that, that, that justification is a glorious concept. It's a glorious concept. Justification says you're declared righteous by God Based upon the work of Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees us through the reality of Christ. You're justified by grace through faith. You're declared righteous by the work of the cross. But he says this, but but really a subset of justification and a higher statement of justification is not only are you declared righteous, but you're embraced by Abba Father. It's one thing to be declared righteous, but he said it's an even more glorious thought that God the Father embraces you into his bosom. So adoption through the work of the cross or through propitiation. It's like the old hymn that says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What is all my righteousness? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So so everything flows out of the gospel. And then he says this, he says, Timothy, As I urged you, which is a a term of familiarity and joy and kindness, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, I want you to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge. It's a strong word. Command. Charge. Command them. So urge, tender, remain, charge. Certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to Miss and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God which is by faith. So, Timothy, I want to urge you, as I urged you, remain so you can charge, command, strong word. Now, so, I understand Timothy's personality. Timothy was shy, he was averse to conflict and conflict management. It would be easy for Timothy to hit some obstacles and say, well, I'll just go to the next city. Obstacles, next city. Obstacles, next city. Paul says, no, you, you got to stick to it. you got to stick to it, Timothy. I, I, I urged you to remain, to charge, to command them, not to, to, to teach anything that's contrary to the apostolic message of the cross. So you, you remain. Listen. Part of honoring the Lord is just being consistent. It's just going strong. It is just getting up and praying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I tell people frequently that, that really it's, it's, it's like walking into the wind. You know, you just go forward. Life can be Hard. Uh, marriages can be difficult. I mean, you're, you're a sinner. You married a sinner. You have different motivations, different inclinations, different family systems. It's hard at times. It's, a, it's a joy, but it, it can be hard. And you just walk into the wind. You say, we're going we're to work this out. We're going to go forward. We're going to honor Christ. We're going to serve each other. We're going to walk into the wind. We live in a culture that gives up, moves on, Parenting. Parenting is hard at times. It's a joy. It's hard. Earlier this morning I had a prayer meeting and opened the door and a little boy came running in. A year and a half. Daddy picked him up, hugged him. I said, it doesn't get more beautiful than that. But parenting, listen, can be hard. And you just stick into it day after day. We raised two children, two adults now, wonderful children, I thank the Lord for them several times every day, boy and a girl, different. People say, what was it like? Young Mary said, what was it like to raise these children? I said, well, let me tell you, not, not to try to be cavalier, but Helen Keller could have raised one of my kids. Just show up. Just show up. Just, just easy. I won't tell you which one it is. You can guess. I said, the other child was a little bit more difficult. It required a little bit more energy, a little bit more a lot more. I mean, it, it just but that, that's that's but you walk into the wind, relationships. You walk into the wind. That, that's so. So Paul's saying to Timothy, walk into the wind. I urge you, my brother, to remain there, so that, so that you can command them. Charge them. And then he talks about contending. Contend, how do you contend? You contend with certain groups, and there are certain groups at Ephesus. We know that part of the problem of the church at Ephesus with the confessional church, the church that loved doctrine, is that they had left their first love. So he had to contend with that. But I'm just mentioning four groups real quickly. He had to, he had to convince, contend against those. Who, who downgraded the apostolic teaching of the cross in this regard. He says, contend with those or charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. There are people running around saying, well, you know, how can we know that the apostles were right? We have people running around today saying, well, you know, how, how do you know that the, the Scripture is authoritative? Which we is well, the Bible says it's authoritative, and the evidence points to that, the, 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 the harmony, the truth the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then this this is what some of the arguments. Just real quickly, one argument some people use who don't accept the authority of the Bible says, you know, we don't believe Paul wrote 2 Timothy because he uses five different words in 2 Timothy that he doesn't use in 1 Timothy. I said, really, that's your best argument? Maybe he had an app on his iPhone about word enhancement. I don't know, but that's your best argument? Or somebody will say, you know, First and second Peter are very different. First Peter is ironic, it's beautiful, Greek, it's easy to parse, easy to take apart, easy to understand. Second Timothy, or second Peter is choppy, it's scattered. The, the Greek is written by a, seemed like a guy that maybe a guy that's a fisherman. Yeah, like a guy that's a fisherman. So first Peter's written by what we call an amanuensis, who has taken down the thoughts of Peter, Peter as he spoke, John Mark. That, that's your best argument. Should be, be very careful about those who downgrade the authority of the Bible. We believe the Bible is from God. It's God-breathed. It's entirely trustworthy. The, the second group are those who downgrade it. Here's, here's, I see this today everywhere. In the church, I see this. They downgrade the sufficiency of the Bible. They say it's fine to have the Bible, but if you really want to be spiritual, you've got to go on some type of weekend maze walk you got to go to this maze and go through different points and stop at different points and do this and do that. And I'm going, you know, I don't, I, I don't know about that, but, but, but it's primary, the, it's the Bible. I mean, this incredible promise from 2 Peter 1 says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So everything you need for life and godliness, Peter says, is right here. It's here. And as you stay here and worship with an open Bible and plead for the power of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that you're, you, are, you partake... Participate, you become like Jesus and you escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. This is what we need. Brothers and sisters, we need the Bible by the power of the Spirit applied to our lives. And, and, and you can go to so many weird, silly, fatuous myths, even in the church. I was reading about a person, this is very popular. He would you re image your birth. And you reimage your birth and instead of an OBGYN God the Father receives you and wipes, wraps you in cloths and loves you and I'm going really? And I'm not trying to be funny. I said the Bible says throughout I'm adopted in the family of God by the cross. I don't need to reimage that. I need the Bible. So it, it concerns me about, about myths and genealogies and the sufficiency of the Bible, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, is in Luke chapter 8. I just think of this passage frequently. It's, about, it's a story about a woman who for 12 years has spent all of her money with physicians because of a blood flow that is incurable. And she's penniless. And in this culture, a woman with a blood flow was considered unclean. And so you couldn't go places. You couldn't be in any type of home. You couldn't be embraced. You, you were an outcast. You were a leper. And she hears about a man who's a healer named Jesus who's come into town. And she thinks, if I can only touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be healed. It's an incredible story. And so the narrative in Luke 8 says this, Verse 42. The people pressed all around Jesus and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She was healed. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And Peter said, Master, come on. The crowd surround you and you're pressing in on you. There's a mob here. Everybody's touching you. And you said, No, 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 no. Somebody came and touched me in a way that bespoke of, I need healing, I need refreshment, I need wholeness. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I, I just think, you know, the, the, the most important thing I need, brothers and sisters, is what I call fringe time every day. Every day I need to touch the edge of the garment of Jesus as I study the Bible. I, I, need, I need to get in the presence of Jesus, say, God, by your Holy Spirit, touch me and heal me and change my calloused heart and give me the inclinations to know and love you. I need fringe time every day. And that, that is found in, in a, a Holy Spirit application of the Word of God, not running off to to other other things. So, So he says, contend. Another way, primary way I think in this church was contending against embryonic gnosticism. Gnosticism said that the whole world is a putrid mistake and a mess. There's no divine creator that made the heavens and the earth. It was made by a fallen angel, and so it is putrid. Uh, the, and the only way to have any, any re- understanding of the God who is incomprehensible and unknowable is through some type of intuitive, special, secretive knowledge. So some of the words they would use to describe would be knowledge is private, it's internal, it's secretive, and it's intuitive. And so the Knoxes the came on, they said, You know, really, we, we, we need to have this uh, secretive, intuitive, private knowledge. We, it's not a God that can be known. And the apostle stood up and says, No, this God made the heavens and the earth, and this God can be known in the person and work of Christ, and his word tells us all about it. Two totally different worldviews. Polls conducted about 10 years ago ask Americans when you are in trouble and you're looking for answers, where do you go? 56% said, I look within. 56%. Don't look within. Look without. Look to the living God. You, you, you look to the one who is Lord and God. I get a magazine every month. It's a good organization called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And in the back, they always have six or seven athletes on college campuses, high school campuses sometimes, uh, who have done something and so they interview them and they ask uh, who's most influenced your life or what is your goal as in, in 20 years and they always ask this question what is your favorite Bible verse and at least 60% of the time the favorite Bible verse is what you want to guess Philippians 4.13 Philippians 4.13 uh, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I always want to say, I hope they're reading the verse in context. Because in Philippians 4.11, Paul says, people ask me, how, you know, I've learned how to live in prosperity. I've learned how to live in want. I've learned how to live on top of the mountain and in the bottom of the mountain. I've learned how to live in Good times and bad, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People say, Paul, Paul, how in the world have you been left for dead after being stoned? How have you how have you been left on an island shipwrecked and snake bitten? How how in the world have you been beaten with a rod? Thirty-nine stripes, which kills most people. How in the world have you faced rejection and persecution and escaped by night over a wall before people could kill you, who've taken a place to kill you? How in the world have you done this? And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, my problem with that verse is a life verse is this. A lot of people read it like this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's not the passage. The passage says Jesus gives power. Jesus gives the stick to itiveness. Jesus gives the anointing. Therefore, I can do all things through the Christ who strengthens me. So, so he says, Timothy, contend, contend against these people. Man, brother, contend. And then he says this, as a fourth group says, and those who, who teach endless genealogies. He says, they endless genealogies which promote speculations. And, what does that mean? I have no idea. If you study this passage, people are not sure what Paul means here, but obviously the church did. It could mean they take the Old Testament genealogical tables and, and read secret knowledge into them or coded messages and, that are myths and speculative. It means maybe they could talk about their family history and brag about their genealogical heritage. Paul says, but this kind of stuff doesn't produce holiness It doesn't produce godliness. It produces endless speculations. And then he says to me, the theme of the book, as opposed to the stewardship of God, which is by faith. The stewardship of God, which is by faith. Now listen, a steward is someone who manages something that is not his own. A steward is someone who's been gifted, and they manage that which is not their own, for someone to whom they will give an account. So when we talk about biblical stewardship, what we mean is this, that everything that we have is a gift from God, our energies. Our abilities to earn income, our relationships, our families, we are stewards. Now, many people have worked hard and labored to get where they are, but God gave you the ability to labor and work hard. God gave you the mind to think about postulates and problems and whatever, to to get where you are. So so a, a steward is someone who says, the glorious design of my life is that I am a steward by faith in the reality of Christ. I manage that which is not my own. Nothing discourages me more than to see someone who is gifted throw it away. And as you get older, the list grows. The list grows. I was writing, working on this. I thought about somebody I knew in high school who was a year ahead of me. We played football together, ran track together. He was much faster than I was. Never came close to beating him. He was a halfback. He was all-state. He was recruited by Division I schools. I only played with two guys that were recruited by Division I schools. He was one of them. He was very bright. He was in the National Honor Society, and he never studied. I never studied, and I certainly wasn't in the National Honor Society. Okay? (laughs) He had it all. He walked away from it. He turned down football scholarships, went from school to school, got involved in the drug culture, just went down the tube. Everybody liked him. Everybody loved him. When he was 35 or 36, he was in some type of a drug-induced state, and his younger brother was eating breakfast, and he thought his younger brother had broken into the house, so he slipped up behind him and slit his brother's throat. His brother was rushed to the hospital. His life was barely spared. He went from rehab to rehab center. He's now 62. The last I heard, he's just sitting in a room mumbling his name. He threw it away. His best friend, who was not as good an athlete, but who was gifted, demonized back, died of an LSD overdose seven years ago. Just just throw it away. See, we have stewardship. We have a stewardship because God has called us to himself. We're responsible. I've seen this guy and had a chance to Spent some time with somebody in this church that I've known for 32 years, and he may tell you he was recruited by Division of One of schools, but he was not. And I, I, I've seen him. I've seen his wife. I was I was there when their children were born. I wasn't literally there. I'd say that in the last service, I was in the same city when their children were born. I wasn't in the labor room. I've seen them raise their children. I, I've seen their children. By God's grace, embrace the gospel. I've seen joy and harmony. And this is, he, he's a fine brother. He's a regular guy. But let me tell you what. He gets up every day of his life, and, and, and he puts on the armor of Christ as he puts on his clothes. And he says, God, use me to advance your name. He gets stewardship. He gets, he's going to give an account to God one day. And he lives accordingly. And may God make his tribe multiply a thousandfold. So so, see, so the theme of this book is the stewardship that comes from God, which is by faith, Building the local church, in relationships, just the stewardship of God which comes by faith. So, so church, as, as we close, I, I do not like lists. Uh, but sometimes you' got to have to make applications. So, so I just said, this is me, this is only my stuff. What is, what helps us become better stewards or good stewards? What do we do? And I've just put down five things that could have been much more than that, but five things. No, no, number one, and this is, this is where I'm just going to, I'm going to lose a lot of you guys, um, but I, I believe this. If I'm a good steward, I will work hard to honor God on the Lord's day. Uh, I believe that the early church went from a Sabbath observance on Saturday to a Sabbath observance on Sunday because they wanted to celebrate every Sunday the resurrection of Jesus. It was so huge. They said, we want to celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter, guys. Every Sunday. And, And so the early church church throughout the ages says, man, it is important to honor the Lord on the first day of the week, Sunday, and, and to be fed and prepared and energized to go out and represent Him in the world Monday through Saturday. And that was a standard of the church, but that has fallen off the table. And, and now Sunday, for many people who claim the name of Jesus, is a sports day and a travel day, and it breaks my heart. And I, I'm just saying to you, work hard to honor the Lord on the Lord's day. I need Sunday. To worship, to see you guys, to go to my community group, to sing rich hymns of faith, to, to hear the word. I need it. It's God's way of, of energizing and teaching it's throughout the Bible. And and, and you know, it's, it's just it's a sports day. It's a travel day. You go to Europe, if you go to Europe, so if you go to Europe, if you're gonna eat on Sunday, you better shop on Saturday. In Europe, nothing is open on Sunday. Nothing. It's not because they're Sabbatarians and they come out of the Geneva School of Calvin. It's because they've done sociological studies and sociological studies tell them that if when families are together and they spend time together and they have leisure time together, that marriages are preserved, that homes are happier, that children do not get involved in as much crime, and the society doesn't crumble. Therefore, we're going we're gonna to say, and it's sociological. I tell you, I love college football, but every time the Gamecocks or Tigers play at night, my soul grieves, especially if they're home. I go, oh, man, I wish they had game day at 6 o'clock in the morning. So I wish they had 6 a.m. kickoffs is what I'd like, you know. So I, I just say, I was with a young family this week, and I was... And they, they had three young girls, and they said, you know, we really want to be together for worship on Sunday. And it's hard because, yes, yeah, I said, fight against the tithe. Fight it. Fight it. Secondly, is this just, uh, we're stewards of our possessions. I believe church tithing is a biblical principle. I believe God commands it. I don't think it's ever abrogated. Other people say that it is, but they say the grace-giving is at least a tithe. So, I mean, I want to honor God with my resources, period. And you bring it into the local storehouse. You bring it to the local church. Tell the elders, disseminate it. Missions can be disseminated. Am I stewards of my relationships? Uh, Romans 12, as much as depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Am I at peace with all men? Do I pursue peace? Do do I give a good report? Am I I a steward of my words and my friendships? Number four, am I gospel laden? There are people, there are people that we are neighbors with, that we work with, that are in our families, that if they died today, they would go to eternal judgment. I, I think the Bible teaches that. And the question is, am, am I gospel laden? It's a term. Am, is my heart heavy for those without Christ? And man, to say that is to make yourself very unpopular. You know, but I think the Bible teaches that. Do I have a gospel ladenness over unreached people groups around the world? Do I have a gospel ladenness over friends and family and coworkers and neighbors? I want to be a good steward of that. I want to be a good steward of that. Am I speaking Christ to people? And then fifthly, I just put down am I pursuing Christ with knowledge and passion? It's interesting to me that the last thing that we have from the Apostle Peter, who is a lovable, bold fisherman. Fisherman. He says in chapter 3, verse 18 of 2 Peter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge. Know the gospel. Know the content of the gospel and what the gospel means in your life. And I just ask myself: Am I growing in the knowledge of Christ? Am I studying the Bible? Am I making an application? Am I reading a, a book of the of the month or a, a, a book of the quarter where I'm thinking through issues? See the, the difference. Paul Paul says Timothy Timothy really I want you to understand that 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 my goal my goal is for you to instead of instead of endless genealogies and silly myths and silly tales and silliness, I want you to be anchored in the gospel of grace and the apostolic message, which means that you're a steward of God by faith. You're gifted. You're called. You live it out. Oh, brothers, oh, please. May we do that. Uh, let's, let's pray, okay? Let's just pray. Lord, thank you for the... Thank you for these words, I just pray we'd contend for the truth of the gospel. In in a culture that uh, seemingly increasingly is walking away from any concept of truth, I pray that we'd contend with joy and brokenness for the sufficiency of Scripture in our lives and in this church. I, I pray that we would Stand strong. I I pray that we'd understand the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Stewardship of God by faith. And we'd live it out. So we bless your name, Lord. Please work in our lives, I pray. Please do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.